Welcome to Napava Coffee House, presented by Napava, the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association, in collaboration with the Harvard Law School Center on the Legal Profession. My name is Genevieve Antono. I am in the Harvard Law School class of 2022, and I'm super excited to be producing this project as part of my student fellowship with the Center on the Legal Profession. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce you to the host of our show, Lawrence Tu. Larry grew up in Taipei, Taiwan, Long Island, New York, and Bellevue, Washington. He went to Harvard University, where he was involved in the varsity fencing team. Uh, he was also involved in Harvard Debate, the Asian Students Organization, Rowing, and Tennis. After graduating from Harvard undergrad, um, Larry went to Oxford University on a Rhodes Scholarship. He then went to Harvard Law School. After law school, Larry started his career clerking on both the Second Circuit and for Justice Thurgood Marshall at the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, after that, he spent a couple of years at the U.S. Department of State working on international trade and investment matters. Fast forward a few years, Larry moved to Hong Kong, where he served as managing partner for the Hong Kong office of O'Melveny & Myers, and where he served as general counsel for the APEC region for Goldman Sachs. He then moved back to the United States, where he served as general counsel for NBC Universal, the general counsel for Dell, and the chief legal officer and senior advisor to the CEO at CBS Corporation. Larry retired from CBS in 2020, and today he spends his time uh, trying to resurrect his fencing, skiing, and tennis skills. Um, he's also been dreaming uh, about traveling to his bucket list destinations, but that unfortunately has been uh, postponed uh, quite a little bit. In addition, now that Larry is retired, he may or may not have been peer pressured by uh, members of the Napava community into becoming the host of Napava Coffee House. Meanwhile, our guest for today is Lola Lin, Chief Legal Officer for Howmet Aerospace. Howmet is a leading global provider for advanced engineered solutions for the aerospace and the transportation. Um, industries. So I won't go into too much detail as Larry will be interviewing Lola, uh, but to give a quick overview, um, Lola is a Texas girl. She graduated from the University of Texas and the University of Houston College of Law. After law school, Lola spent a couple of years as a transactional associate before moving in-house at Dell. She then went on to Air Liquide, where she was in various roles, including deputy general counsel. She then moved on to Air Gas, where she served as general counsel. And as I mentioned earlier, she's now the Chief Legal Officer at Howmet Aerospace. All right, without further ado, here's Larry and Lola. It is my great pleasure to introduce all of you to Lola Lin. Lola and I first met nearly 20 years ago when we were both working for the same company in Austin, Texas. We've stayed in touch ever since over the years and I followed her career progression and advancement with great interest. Um, so let's start at the beginning, Lola. Uh, tell us something about your early life, your upbringing, your parents, your background. Sure, Larry. Um, I'm a Texas girl, first and foremost, uh, raised in Houston by Taiwanese immigrant parents. Uh, my father is an engineer and uh, he was in the oil business for his whole career. For undergrad, I went to the University of Texas at Austin, Hook'em Horns, and then I went to law school at the University of Houston. Then I started my law career at Locke in Houston as a transactional lawyer for six years or so, 
And then I moved on in-house to join you at Dell under your leadership for a couple of years. So let me let me go backwards for a second and just ask, what is it that led you to law school? Because your parents were not from that profession. I, I imagine, uh, like me, you probably didn't know any lawyers growing up because I surely didn't. And so what led you to the law? You know, it's interesting. Um, it was as simple as, you know, my parents really wanted me to be a, either a physician or an engineer. And I'm not that great at math, frankly, and I don't like blood. So <laughs> I thought law school might be an ideal choice for me. I wasn't really sure why, Larry, but I had a sense that I might enjoy it. Um, I liked people and I thought, you know, speaking to individuals and working out problems might be interesting, but that's really all I knew about the law. Now, did your parents have any reaction to your choice of law school? Did they understand it? Were they confused by it? Did they like it? Did they endorse it? Oh, it's funny you ask that. Uh, they were not exactly sure about it, I, I think. I think they thought a lawyer was a great profession, but they had concerns that as a child of an immigrant that I may not be successful in the profession. And it worried them. Did they have Perry Mason in mind in the back of their heads? <laughs> no, I think what they were worried about was, you know, English is not my parents' first language. And, you know, they were not of this society. They thought it was a very sophisticated profession um, in America and uh, that I, they were concerned I wouldn't be able to navigate my way through that. So if you hadn't chosen law, we talked about this earlier when we were talking about the session. Uh, what was your other career choice? What would that have been? Well, I think without parents and, and others that were, would worry about me, I would love to be a foreign war correspondent. That would be my dream. So in the line of fire, putting your body in harm's way and covering world events. That's right. That's yeah. right. Sounds pretty exciting, huh? Yeah. It doesn't sound like law practice. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. So sure. um, why don't you describe to us um, your current role, which I think you've only taken on relatively recently. Is that right? That's right. I joined HowMet um, in June of 2021, so fairly recently. I moved to Pittsburgh, and that's where I serve as the chief legal officer um, executive vice president and secretary of the company. So um, you started this job, you said roughly six months ago or so? That's right. Yeah. And how's it going? I mean, it's a relatively new thing, getting a new job and starting a new position in a new city in the middle of a pandemic is, is not an easy thing. Well, I'm enjoying it immensely, Larry. It's been wonderful. I have to say the organization has been so receiving of me and welcoming. So that's a that was a great start. Helmet recently separated from its predecessor companies. And so it's moving forward on who it wants to be for the future. It's a very exciting time. So for this job, you had to move from your prior position in, I think, Philadelphia, is that right? Right, correct. To, to, to Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how is the Chinese food in Pittsburgh? You know, actually, it's better than you would think. I am really... Well, tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm am... surprised to hear that. Yes, I am really impressed. Um, interestingly, there is a relatively large Taiwanese population here. And I haven't quite figured out why. I think it's got to do with Carnegie and U Pitt are here. Uh, but there is actually a lot of food that's available that even I had a hard time even finding in Philadelphia and sometimes Houston, like stinky tofu. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. It's, it's yeah. a city of bridges, right? It's, it's got Correct. tons of bridges crossing. I knew something about that. Yes, so, beautiful. Yeah. So um, when we talked last, you described to me uh, something which I found really fascinating, which was the whole interview process you had to go through to uh, get this position, including a fairly extensive assessment. So tell, tell us something about that process. 
So I think the leadership at Helmet had had a, a very good experience over the years at utilizing a psychiatrist, a very well-known psychiatrist, to analyze and help determine whether talent would be a good fit for their organization. And so before joining Helmet or being considered for a position, I did have to meet with that psychiatrist and go through a multi-hour uh, interview process uh, in which I received a 16-page report about my life and my work. So when you say multi-hour, I think you're actually understating it, right? It's not like one or two or three. No, uh, no, five hours of interviews as well as uh, assessments. Um, the total process probably about eight to nine hours after doing all the paperwork, uh, doing the interview, finishing up on assessments. Now, did you did you get editing rights? Did you get to review not the report and say, yeah, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> so, so did you? So tell me what you learned about yourself through this assessment that might have been either new to you or a little bit of a surprise to you, or maybe not, maybe you, you, knew, you know yourself so well that none of it was a surprise. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful process, Larry. You know, we talked about it. it yeah. it's, gru it's grueling. Um, it exposes you to someone you don't even know. You know, you start at the very beginning of your life and you talk about your relationship with your parents and your childhood and how that might have impacted your choices through life. Um, but what you get back is a report that talks about, um, you know, the from the outsider standpoint, you know, what they think you're great at, what you might want to develop, uh, you know, what might be a gap between what you think you are doing well and what they think you are not necessarily doing as well as you had thought. So there were quite a few areas in which um, I don't know that I was surprised. So that was I was fortunate to see Larry that I had an inclination that some of that was there, uh, but it, it went into good detail about what I could do better. And, so. and they also talked to references, right? And got other perspectives on you as well on top of that. That's right. Uh, yeah. They talked about six people in yeah. my in, in my world. Um, so it was a very extensive process. So so this report basically laid out uh, in black and white all, all of the perspectives and input about you, sort of the good, maybe the not so good, the pluses, and maybe the, the minor minuses, whatever they was all laid bare out there. That's right. So when you read the report, would you have hired you? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Based on what the report said? Of course. <laughs> no, you know, it's, it's interesting, Larry, you know, some of the things that were highlighted in the report that were, some would perceive as negative, actually might have been, I suspect, some of the reasons why, in fact, they may have hired me. Hmm. And what I learned after the report was there's only a finite way, you know, finite number of words that someone can use to describe human behavior. But I think a lot of times they come with connotations where you think it might be negative, but it actually, there, there is no trait that doesn't have both a positive aspect and a negative aspect. It's just the extremes. You know, it's an amazing process because when I think about it and I think about our parents' generation and think about how they would have reacted to going through something like this, you know, because we, I, I know that I was raised to put my head down, work hard and, you know, work will speak for itself but you don't talk about yourself and people don't really talk about you. This is such a different process from that perspective, right? From the way we were right. brought up. Yeah. How did you go about assessing the company, which is the flip side of this? So when you're, you know, a lot of people are curious about how people take on new opportunities, how they explore um, 
what's out there, how they get a handle on uh, things that might be available to them, and how they make a determination about fit. So clearly, the company has spent a lot of effort trying to understand you and assess you from their perspective. So how much can you learn about a company looking in from the outside? Uh, I'm sure this is not the only job you've looked at. There have been other opportunities along the way. So how do you go about assessing an opportunity and seeing and making decisions about whether it's a good fit, not such a good fit, and what are the questions that need to be answered and how you go about answering them? Well, I think it ties into a little bit of what we talked about. You know, the fact that the company wanted me to go through that process gave me a bit of an insight into the company, that it was thoughtful about the leadership mm. that it wanted to bring on, that it was willing to make investments in its management team. Um, you know, this, is, this process is a significant in, uh, investment, and it was meant to be a springboard, actually, for uh, career development exercises that I might take on when I joined the company. So it was building that foundation. So that was actually a really good sign that they were spending so much time trying to assess the talent. But I, I do, you know, we talked about this a bit, Larry, before, is that it's really difficult to understand what you might be walking into. And for, for me, uh, my philosophy on that is really to say, come up, before I start looking for jobs, really deeply understand myself and what I'm looking to achieve in my next position. And that becomes my North Star. Those, those factors that I'm looking for become my North Star in a job. And as long as it checks those boxes, I don't necessarily limit myself by a particular industry or having it be in a particular place or being uh, colleagues with particular types of people. I just look for a job that fits with the, the factors that I've identified that are best for me in my next position. And then I go well, for it. Yeah, as you said, too, the fact that they invested such in a, a huge process into learning about you says a lot about how they go about assessing fit. I mean, right. they know themselves very well. And of course, they want whoever they hire to come in and be a huge success because that's in everyone's interest. Exactly. And so that investment they make actually speaks volumes about how seriously they, they take the process. So t talk a little bit about the job that you left to take this role and um, your experiences there and how that job prepared you for this next step? Sure. I was a general counsel at Airgas um, in Philadelphia, and that really was an incredible job. It really was. I worked for a CEO um, that was just um, somebody that I have such high esteem for. Um, and so that, that was really, really helpful. But most uh, the best part of it was we went through everything together. I mean, in terms of the company had just been acquired by Air Liquide uh, in an industry shifting acquisition. Mm. Uh, it was trying to achieve synergies, right, to justify the purchase. And so that's always tough integration. But at the same time, it was experiencing quite a few monumental events that all culminated at once. Um, and as a management team, we had to work through a myriad of very, very difficult issues um, all together. And, and, you know, at the same time, I had to get, a, you know, get a new team, try to develop that new team and, right. and organize it uh, to best support the air gas of the future. Yeah. So, so it was, it was a, a position that allowed me to become really well-rounded. Kind of like being a war correspondent in a foreign in a foreign conflict. Exactly, <laughs> just like I like it. <laughs> now, the the role the, the before that role, you went through a number of roles at at a related company. 
right. uh, where uh, it, it seems like you, you were able to take on, it was almost as if you changed jobs without changing company because you took on so many different kinds of roles as you progressed through the company. Tell us about that, because that also was part of your preparation for what's led you to where you are today. That's right. So uh, I joined Air Liquide. Uh, at, like I said, it's a French industrial gas company. And uh, they were, you know, I was in their U.S. affiliate, which was a significant size company. And uh, there we had a very broad array of product lines, you know, uh, industrial gases, oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, helium. And what's fascinating about that is that you basically work with every customer subset out there. Mm. And so, you you know, I was able to walk into a company that had such a broad base of customers and issues and products. But then on top of that, I was enabled, uh, I was able to move around within that organization and do so many different projects. I was a transactional lawyer at first and actually focused on that. But then I moved on to um, many different areas, uh, real estate. I learned environmental. Uh, I also you know, started looking after some pre-litigation matters and crisis management. And so just on and on and on, I was able to grow my skill set, which helped immensely to diversify my resume and make me a more attractive candidate for a company with multiple issues. Well, I mean, in, in my experience, not all companies are set up that way, where as an in-house lawyer, you get to actually try on very different kinds of experiences. I, I can think of lots of other companies where the in-house departments are much more fixed and maybe even bureaucratic. And you go into a role and it's very hard to actually change into a completely different kind of role. You can't go from being a transactional lawyer, for example, to being a litigator very easily in a lot of companies. So it sounds like you had actually a great platform to make those kinds of leaps within the company and learn different skill sets. Um, but for somebody who doesn't have that opportunity, how would you advise them to grow themselves if they feel a little bit stuck in a place in a company legal department? Yeah, I, I have a true belief that inertia is actually the most inhibitive to growth you know, staying somewhere too long that you know doesn't fit with your aspirations. You know, I like to be in environments of change. I like to learn new things all the time. Um, and so I needed to find a place that would promote that, would, that would support that, that would grow me that way. Um, and it had to be open to allow me to do many different things. And you're absolutely right, Larry, that's not, a, that's not the makeup of a lot of law departments or organizations. Um, and some people don't need that level of frequency of change and alteration. So, you know, they're okay, I think, in, in, in most traditional legal departments. But if you're someone who's really focused on growing exponentially as fast as you can, you really need to, I think, pay attention to the environment that you're in and the company you're going to to make sure that you can get those kind of opportunities. And for me, I've seen it in, you know, Air Liquide was a global multinational company, but the fortunate thing was I was in a U.S. affiliate of significant size. So we had the breadth of issues that you would want to tackle, but we had a small enough legal department where they needed all hands on deck and anyone could raise their hand and do what they wanted to do. So it was a great combination. So it sounds like in your case, going to a division or to a sub part of a larger company, which might not have been so large, actually gave you a platform to grow. Uh, sometimes people worry that they start too small, but in your case, it actually was a huge launching pad, it sounds like, for, for a kind of multifaceted in-house legal experience. 
I think if I had been in the head office um, and I had tried uh, to take on a, a particular area um, and stayed in that that lane, I, I would have had a very different trajectory in my career. Hmm. Hmm. So how did you know it was time to make a change? So you just took this new job roughly six, eight months ago. Uh, you were in your prior role for, I think, five or six years. Is that right? As general counsel? Right. Yeah. So how do you how do you think about that issue in terms of what what have I accomplished? Have I been here long enough? Do I need more challenges? How do you think about that set of issues? So I do think the moment you really start to think, you know, should I move or should I change? You know, a lot of people come to me, Larry, and ask that question, like, you know, I've been thinking about it for a while that I need to go and, you know, I, I think I need to grow. I always tell them, I think you're a little bit too late already. Um, you should have moved a while ago because, <laughs> <laughs> because, because it takes, you know, I, I think you, if you really every day check yourself to say, am I growing at the level in which I want to grow? Right. For me, it has to be exponential every day. I have to be doing something new to me, interesting to me, exciting to me, or it's not a good day for me. Um, but once you gauge that every day, you should recheck to see if it's, you know, the job is actually meeting your expectations. Because I also believe, Larry, on the flip side, that's why I could, I'm so invested in my job. That's why I can do the best is because I'm always gauging if there's a symbiotic relationship there where I'm getting everything I need and I can give everything I can, you know, I have. And so I think more people should check every day to see if, they're in the place that they should be. If there's a time where it's starting to, that balance is starting to change, even at the beginning, then you should just start to think about what is my natural exit from what I'm doing. That doesn't mean from your organization. That means exit from the position you might be in or in the expertise that you're pursuing. Uh, but it's time to think about changing at that point. Wow, so if you combine a kind of drive for exponential growth, as you say, to quote your words, with someone who might be a really fast learner, uh, that could be a recipe for a lot of change in one's life. Yes, indeed. So, so that's so, where I've been. Yeah. So uh, obviously, it, you know, when managing one's career through all of these potential opportunities, uh, in addition to the professional aspect of it, there's also the family aspect of it uh, in terms of how to, you know, reflect those considerations, how to include your family in that process, how to take um, you know their input into account? Is it a democracy? Do they get a vote? I mean, how does all that all of that work? So, how have you managed that set of issues in terms of the family dimension, uh, in terms of managing your career advancement and change? I would say that's the toughest part. It really is, um, especially at the general counsel levels. It, if you can find your dream job in your dream city, close to your family and friends. That's ideal, but I, I, I know that both for myself and for many others, uh, it, it's difficult to find that, that intersection of everything. And so I, I really encourage people to start very early talking about building an infrastructure in their family that matches their ambitions. Uh, you know, in my family for, you know, even since I met my husband 30 years ago, you know, he's known that if it doesn't hurt the ones that I love, I'm going to go for it. 
And so he's always been 100% supportive of me on that. We've been fortunate through our life that he has a career that needs an airport, and so he can be flexible in terms of location. But I do firmly believe that even if he didn't have that flexibility, we'd find a way to make it work because he knows it's so important to me. But the same is with my son, who's 14 now. I've reloaded him two or three times as well in his short life. Um, and he knows that mom, you know, is going to try uh, to go for uh, the new next experience or opportunity for our family. But I've talked to him a lot about what it brings us. And that's the makeup of our dynamic. And he's really supportive of me. Now, uh, are there times or can you envision times in the future where family considerations might cause you to pause or not pursue something or even to turn something down because it may not be the right thing or the right place or the right time? We have elderly parents that we love uh, dearly, and there might be a time in the future when we need to be closer to them. Uh, it's always difficult to find a way to optimize uh, your career, but also optimize opportunities for your family. So every time we're considering whether it's the right move for my husband, my son, and the rest of the extended family. And it's worked out so far, but I can't envision a time where we might have to make some different choices based on that. Well, maybe you can always say to somebody that in your family that, you know, at least taking this next job isn't the same thing as going off and covering a foreign war. That's it's a right. Lot it's, a, it's, a lot, it's a lot safer than that. So don't complain. <laughs> That's right. You're lucky. <laughs> So um, let's talk about your, your new role um, and, and, and the fact that one of the jobs as a general counsel is to go in to a company, assess the legal organization, assess the needs of the company, and then make the right changes to take the company forward. Um, so how do you go about doing that? And how have you, over time, learned to be confident about those kinds of personnel and organizational decisions? Because that's not something you learn in law school. And it's also not something you learn in law practice in a law firm. It's a skill you have to obtain over time and have the confidence to actually make the call and then execute. How do you do that? And how, how did you learn to do that? I had some very good uh, examples of how to do that. Uh, I worked for a wonderful general counsel for uh, a, a decade. And one of the things that I admired the most was that he actually ran, uh, his department was a true meritocracy. And he uh, really assessed our progress by, you know, the work that we did on an everyday basis. And so that actually, uh, being part of that system that he created, really informed how I want my team to feel when they're part of my organization. And so, I actually, you know, another piece of advice that he gave me long ago and early in my career was to follow my gut. And the place where I use that the most is in hiring or personnel decisions. I actually uh, do what's called a heart hire. I don't really hire on resume content. I'm fortunate that by the time a resume gets to me, it usually has been vetted by my team and it's somebody that's incredibly talented. So I keep the evaluation quite simple. I'm really looking for someone who has the heart, the energy, the drive um, to be successful in my department and someone who is okay with change and who's able to absorb new things and is actually excited about that. So it, it ends up for me, Larry, being a pretty, um, you know, talent, I don't want to 
I don't want to minimize how important it is to select talent and it's somebody's livelihood, but I keep it pretty simple in terms of the criteria that I apply to find the right person for my team. Well, I think it's reasonable to assume that by the time some candidates got into you, you know, they're going to have checked all the boxes in terms of competency. Right. And so it's really the other intangibles that are, that are going to make the difference. Exactly. So when you think back on personnel decisions or organizational decisions you've made along the way, have you made mistakes? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, absolutely. without without naming names or compromising anything, I mean, what's the kind of mistake that you might have made in the past that you think you've learned from as you have, have to keep doing this in your role as a GC of a new company? Well, actually, one of the things that I'm trying to implement consciously today is this feeling of calm. So because we've talked about it, I, I think progress is a you know is always around change you know reviewing something that's historic and seeing if it's the right thing for us to do reevaluating reassessing and you know since I've come to Helmet I've done a lot of that and I think it's been a good thing and I'm encouraging the team to do it as well but now that we've had a several months together where we've only been talking about change and reflection and you know um, a different mindset. I probably need to stop and pause right now and let it organically sink in, let people absorb that, uh, create a sense of calmness and security for them. Um, and it's counter to my normal, you know, my normal way. And so I'm very conscious of trying yeah. to do that right now. Well, it's probably not a surprise that not everyone will be as hungry for change as others Correct. might be. And the tolerance for change and turbulence may be unequal across people as well. And some people might, in your case, I think it's pretty clear that you crave exponential growth. And there may be others who actually like growth in a, in a steadier pace, and they may do better in that environment. So obviously, as the manager, you've got to uh, uh, accommodate all of these different preferences and personalities that's to right. make the team prosper, right? And that's, that's a very difficult job. It is. We're all inclined to sort of manage the way that we think we would like to be managed. And I think what I've learned over the years is to really sit down and tailor uh, a success, you know, a, a plan for success for each employee specifically. What has motivated me and what has encouraged me is not necessarily what others are looking for. And they can do wonderfully and well as long as we create a plan and a structure that that engages them in the way that they feel most comfortable. So. I know it's still new in your new role, but you can answer this based on either this job or prior roles you've had. What do you really love about your job? And what are the parts that you really would rather not be doing, but you have to do anyway? The parts that I love the most is, you know, we're fortunate in that we have a job where there's this intersection of complexity around humans, business, commercial issues, who has the leverage, who has emotion around an issue. There's a lot of aspects uh, that come into play on the things that we deal with, pressure, um, consequence. Uh, it, it, there's always a lot at stake. And so I think that's what's really interesting um, about the job. And so uh, issues that come on my desk that are complex, hard to solve, emotional, uh, I find those to be the most invigorating and challenging. And since those arrive pretty frequently, uh, yep. that, that keeps me engaged in the job. Uh, the part that 
I don't like to do. I don't know. There's got to be something. I don't know, Larry. So. Well, I tell you what, 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 the one thing I didn't, I never liked much was budgeting. And, you know, especially okay. in, in a company where you're going through a phase that may be extremely cost conscious. Yes. That always, I found that process maddening. It was very important to do it right because you are, after all, part of the yes. P&L structure of the company. But I, I found that the least enjoyable. Other people thrive on that stuff. I hated it. No, that's a good example. I didn't even, I blocked that one out. That's how much I don't, <laughs> I don't like to do budgeting. Uh, I do think it's a challenge to use the budgeting process to refine the team in terms of what their expectations are and what their needs are to a practical level. But you're right. When the budgeting takes on a life of its own in some organizations where it's cutting for cutting's sake, that's not a comfortable place. Yeah. And so that's, I, I don't like that. Now, what about corporate politics? Yeah. Uh, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? It's a, is it a necessary evil? How do you react to the fact, and, and this may be part, is part of the complexity you referred to earlier, because yes. institutions have to make decisions, and institutions are nothing but the people in them, and they have very different perspectives and very different priorities, and so balancing all of that is always very hard. But politics also comes into it, as, as does personality conflict. Yes. So what about that part of the job, which has nothing to do with law or logic, but everything to do with getting to good answers. I think politics gets, the, the connotation around the word is, is not the one that I use. It absolutely is present in corporate America, this, you know, this, this notion of politics that everyone refers to. But when I'm actually in an organization, I'm really trying to spend time understanding the perspective of each one of those, those people who are at the table that have a disagreement and actually trying to dig in and see how I can navigate that. And I try to use some of my some of my skills around empathy and and you know developing relationships with people to smooth that over. So although I, I don't like the term politics, all the things that come behind it are a reality in our job. And I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to make sure that those bumps in the work that we do are smoothed out as best as possible. Well, you know, and they're also unavoidable. And every, every one of your colleagues faces the same set of issues. And so you're, in a way, all in it together, right? I mean, it's just, it just comes with the territory. It does, but you have to find a way, you really do have to find a way, your own authentic way to, to actively address those things. I think where, where a career could go sideways or you may not be as successful as you want to be at the highest levels is to not have, a, you know, it's not to have a recognition. That's a big part of your job, yep. navigating, yep. navigating all of that. Yep, I, I totally agree. Well, listen, we have about five minutes, and so I'm going to, turn to my yes, no round, which I mentioned to you. I'm going to read you three assertions and have you answer yes or no or agree or disagree if you can. And then we can talk about uh, some of the grays and nuances around those. Um, here's number one. GCs spend very little time actually doing legal work. So if you love the law, if you're a lawyer's lawyer, this is not the role for you. Yes or no? True. You think uh, unqualified? Because a lot of great lawyers become GCs. You are one of them, people who love the law. Yes, but if you don't realize, you know, recently I heard this expressed just perfectly, being a GC is a different sport. 
a different sport than the one you've been playing. So tell so, me, so what's your analogy? What's the sport that you were playing and what's, and what's the sport you're playing now? <laughs> Analogies are I, dangerous. <laughs> I, yes, that's right. I'm playing dodgeball now. <laughs> All right, question number two. Although you're surrounded by colleagues and team members, being GC is inherently a lonely and solitary endeavor. Yes, very much so. Well, this is no fun. You're supposed to disagree with me. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so you, you, you do, you, you agree, I actually agree with that as well. I think at the end of the day, a lot of things just roll to you and you're kind of sitting there having to deal with them. Yes, you have colleagues, you have other C-suite executives, uh, you have a team around you that supports you and enables you, but um, the buck does stop. And quite often in a company, the legal job is actually in some respects unique compared to even the other C-suite jobs. I agree with that. You have full accountability and responsibility for a certain subset of matters. And most of the time they count on you um, to make the determinations that are appropriate. Of, of course, you, you, you work with your uh, colleagues um, on the management team as well as your own teams, but uh, it, it is a lonely endeavor in some regards because there are only so many things that you can share and, and do with others. Um, in this job. So in those moments when you're faced with a tough issue and you can't really turn to others in the company, who do you turn to? Where do you go for support, for advice, for a sounding board? What do you do other than just sit in a room and think it through yourself? So I'm very fortunate over the years, I've developed a great network of fellow Friend, you know, fellow GCs, just good friends um, that aren't in the legal field. I mean, it depends what the issue is, but there is always somebody there to be a great sounding board. I know, Larry, I could call you if I got into a pinch and I needed some advice. And so I've been really, you know, that that is the importance of an external network. Of course, I never reveal anything confidential, right? Uh, a lot of times it's it's an issue that you can sort of give the flavor of, right? It's, it's, and get some really good sound advice or someone just to tell you you're playing wrong or you're thinking about it the wrong way and you need to go back to the drawing board. I mean, lots of times that's all I need is just somebody to, to shake up my train of thought and say, get back at it and think about it again. They don't necessarily give me the answer. Yeah. Does your spouse ever play that role for you? Oh, absolutely. I have to say that, you know, I always said that he was the best training I ever had to be an in-house lawyer. I'm married to a sales executive. Ah. So you can imagine <laughs> ever since the beginning of um, our time together, I've heard about how lawyers are inhibiting what they're trying to do and they're deal killers and a lot of other bad things about lawyers. And so I worked really, really hard to try to, uh, understand, and I do because I live it, understand what the other side's life is like and, and adopt my practice to align with the objectives of them and their co- and the rest of the company. But he tells me when I'm not thinking about things right. That leads me to my third question, which, which I'm gonna change and call an audible. So here it is, okay, okay based on what you okay. just said. Business executives are risk takers. Lawyers are risk avoiders. These yeah. roles are fundamentally in opposition. Yes. Yes I or think, no? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but I think the maturity that you gain over time is what enables you to move that needle. What I was really excited to see, Larry, in my last evaluation is that they've identified me over all these years as a risk taker. And I know that I have moved that. 
what I what I tell my teams is that lawyers are actually in the best place to be risk takers. We actually have the most realistic view of what could possibly happen and how likely it could be and if it's real. And so we should use that expertise to instead of hindering and being scared of risk, to be the ones to actually advocate for it and take it because we're best suited to know if it if it's real and if we can accommodate it. So when you're in a business setting and you're talking about a tough issue with your uh, business colleagues and everyone's identifying pros and cons, including risks, including legal risks, and that discussion is fulsome and everything is aired, and now they go around the table and ask people, what would you do? What decision would you make to go forward or not go forward? Are you comfortable expressing a view on that? A business business conclusion, not a legal conclusion, but a business conclusion. I am. I think it's really important, like I said, I do the legal factoring before I even enter the room. When I enter the room, I'm a business leader and no longer a legal person. And so I, I, I do, I've already stretched myself to understand what the boundaries of that risk is. And I'm ready to say that it's, it's a, usually a good one to take. Now, are you more uh, able to do that today than you were 15 years ago? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've come a long, long way on that. I've worked very hard on that. So I leave you with one parting question, which is um, if you had three weeks of uninterrupted time where nobody would bother you, nobody would call you, the phone would go dead, what would you do with that time? I would just start going to all the places in the world that I want to see. There's a couple of places that are really off the beaten path uh, that would take me some time to get to. And so, all right, so, so what, what's the top two on that list? Okay, top two. One is Neom. So I'm fascinated by Neom, uh, this city that Saudi Arabia is building in the middle of the desert. That's a smart city. I would love to see that and, and find out where it is and its trajectory and whether I'd ever want to live there one day. Uh, so that's one. And the other is Socotra, uh, which is an island off the coast of Yemen that's a little bit hard to get to. <laughs> neither, neither one's a war zone. No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> they're not. I gave that dream up a long time ago, Larry. Okay, thank you very much. Well, Lola, thank you so much. This was great fun, and thank you yeah. for your time. No, thank you for leading us in this, Larry, and look forward to seeing you more. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. bye.